Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Isn't it wonderful to be here, worshipping the Lord together? Fantastic. Why didn't we go on? <laughs> then I need to... Uh, yeah, I forgot that. Okay, if you've got a Bible with you, in any, whatever form it is, you might like to turn to Luke chapter 7 uh, and look for uh, verse 18. Okay, Luke 7, verse 18. This passage that's been allocated to me, I didn't choose it, but okay. <laughs> uh, it concerns Jesus and John the Baptist. Now, I, I really don't understand why almost all translations call him John the Baptist. After all, it makes him sound as if he was a member or even the founder of a Christian denomination called the Baptist Church. John wasn't a Methodist, he wasn't an Anglican, he wasn't a Presbyterian, he was a Baptist. No, what it really means, of course, is that he... He baptised people, and it would be far better to describe him as the baptizer. And if you turn to the, the message, you'll find that that at least is one uh, version that does call him the baptizer. That's what I'm going to call him too. So we're going to work through this passage and see what it says, see what it means, see what God is saying to us through it. Thank you. First section. John's view of Jesus, a surprising question. John's disciples told him about all these things, that is the, the news of what Jesus had been doing. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, uh, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else. I've called it a surprising question, or even a shocking question, I think. Um, John is in prison. Luke's already told us that in chapter 3. Herod the Tetrarch has locked him up in a fortress of Machairus, uh, which was in Perea on the east side of the Dead Sea. Because John had a, uh, denounced Herod uh, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife and for all the other evil things that he'd done as well. And this was Herod's way of trying to silence him. Now in prison, John had been told of all the wonderful things that Jesus had been doing. Uh, the people were filled with awe and were praising God, saying things like, a, a great prophet has appeared among us and God has come to help his people. And yet here is John sending two of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for someone else? Now, I find that you know, quite surprising, don't you? Huh? We don't know much, how much John knew, of course, about the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. Remember, as Luke told us, uh, Mary visited Elizabeth, the mother of John, when Elizabeth was six months pregnant. And Elizabeth was made aware that Mary would be the mother of the Messiah. We can see then that Jesus was a, a relative of John, probably cousin, and that John was six months older than Jesus. But how much John's mother told John about Jesus' origins, we don't know. 
Neither do we know if the two young men had much contact as they were growing up, because John lived in a solitary life in the, in the wilderness, but Jesus was growing up in that busy town of Nazareth. So, as far as we can see, it probably wasn't until they were both about 30 years old that they met on the banks of the Jordan River. And Jesus came to be baptised by John. Matthew, of course, tells us that John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you. That suggests that John already had some knowledge of who Jesus was. And Jesus responded, let it be so now, it's proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. We read then in the Gospel of John the Apostle that John the baptizer had been told by God that the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John was telling people, I've seen and testified that this is God's chosen one and this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in the light of all that, how can John possibly ask are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? See the problem? The answer that Augustine of Hippo, um, a, a Christian scholar in the 5th century AD, came up with was that John was trying to get his disciples to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And others have followed this suggestion. But it doesn't really fit, because notice Jesus' response, tell John. Not tell John's disciples, tell John. No, it really does seem that in, that, in, the, in the solitude of that, that, that prison, Herod's fortress, John is beginning to have doubts about who Jesus is. Was he really the Messiah? So what was the stumbling block then? Because Jesus refers in verse 23 to, to, to being offended, to be stumbled. And we need to go back to the accounts of Jesus' preaching. Sorry, John's preaching, beg your pardon. Go back to the accounts of John's preaching. John had proclaimed that the Messiah would baptise with Holy Spirit and fire. That his winning fork, his winnowing fork, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Quite a bit about fire in the message of John the baptizer. And yet there was no sign of Jesus acting in that way. He wasn't bringing judgment on unbelievers. He wasn't uh, bringing deliverance to God's faithful people suffering under Roman occupation. I, if John had known that Jesus had read in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth, I've come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, well, why isn't he being released from prison? Why hasn't God... Jesus got him out of prison. There's a problem for John. Uh, the New Testament scholar Tom Wright, who I'm always quoting and will quote again, he compares this to, to a group of in enthusiastic amateur actors who fully rehearse the show. But in the last performance, the, the star of the show has a new idea. He doesn't tell anybody, but at the crucial moment, he does the opposite of what they'd rehearsed. And in effect, John is saying to Jesus, have you forgotten the script? <laughs> Don't you remember what you're supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be a man of fire, like Elijah. So I think we can begin to see why John asks this question. 
and feel sorry for him, locked up there on his own in prison. So, let's move on. A satisfying answer? Let's read it. Can I find it? Yeah. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I've, I've, I've left a bit out. I'm not reading the bit that's on the screen. I need to go back to 21. Sorry, friends. Why didn't someone shout out? You're a useless lot. You're supposed to help the preacher. Did you? Oh, thank you. She's my best critic. Sorry, back to verse 21. That's my fault. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, in a sense, Jesus is, is he answering the question that John asked? He doesn't say, I am the Messiah. Yes, you needn't look for anyone else. Is Jesus being like our politicians who, when they're asked a question, a direct question, refuse to give a yes or no answer? It does almost feel like that, doesn't it? Well, uh, just look at what Jesus actually said. The two messengers from John are to go back and report things that they've actually witnessed. It's possible that what, they, that what John had heard earlier was, was only based, as it were, on hearsay, on rumour, uh, what his disciples had heard from other people. Now, these two have had a direct experience of the healing activities of Jesus. Uh, and Jesus expects John to recognise that the miracles that his two disciples have witnessed are those that are described in the Jewish scriptures of what will happen when the Messiah comes. For example, Isaiah 35 says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, that Jewish people in the time of Jesus expected the Messiah to do those very things that Jesus was in fact doing. So then Jesus is implying that if the signs of the messianic age are present, then so is the main figure, the Messiah himself. If all these wonderful things are happening, it's because the Messiah has come. He doesn't have to say, I am the Messiah. Work it out for yourself, John. Here's the evidence. Right? And uh, in the, it's interesting that most of those passages that Jesus is referring to do not speak about judgment. When Jesus read that passage from Isaiah 61 in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth, he left out the very phrase that talks about judgment, the day of vengeance of our God. He hadn't come to bring that. 
even if John thought he should. So it's very clear. The time of the Lord's favour, the time of salvation, the day of grace, not the day of judgment, has come. And Jesus says, it's come to bring all the blessings of the kingdom of God to anyone who will enter by faith. The day of judgment will come one day. Jesus will be the judge, but not yet. There's still time for people to repent, to believe the good news, to put their trust in Jesus, to experience forgiveness, deliverance, healing, and so on. And that's still the same today. Okay? What John made of Jesus' answer to his question, we're not told. Did he find it satisfying? Did it remove his doubts? Did it bring him assurance? Did it enable him to face death, having his head chopped off with a calm spirit? knowing that he'd been a faithful herald of the arrival of the Messiah, we're not told. I hope so. So let's pause for a moment before we go on. What might God be saying to us through that part of the passage? First, I think that we need to pray continually for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are in prison because they're Christians. We must pray that their faith will not fail. They're under pressure, right? It's... You know, doubts come in very easily. We want to pray that God, that Jesus by his spirit uh, will answer any doubts that they've got that threaten to disturb their assurance of salvation or, or swamp their confidence in God. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters, realising that they are under pressure. And secondly, when we have doubts, any kind of doubts, and I think we're sure to have them at some stage of our Christian experience, at least that's mine, especially doubts about the existence of God, the goodness and the love of God, about the person and work of Jesus. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's be honest with God. Let's ask for the answers, for the assurance from the Scriptures. Let's go to the Scriptures. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to, to show us, to, 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 to convince us some of us on, on, on Thursday evening home group were reading 1 Corinthians 15. And here is Paul providing a very thorough answer to those in Corinth who were querying the possibility of resurrection. They had doubts. Paul doesn't say, you shouldn't have doubts, you're Christians. He answers them. And we can get answers. So that needs another sermon some other time about how to deal with doubt. <laughs> now, we've got the past. We can keep going. Where did I get to? I was reading bits of this. I was reading the bit, uh, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So we come on now to Jesus' view of John. John's disciples depart. Jesus turns to the crowd and he asks some revealing questions about the baptizer. They're rhetorical questions. He doesn't expect an answer from the crowd, not always. No. But he assumes a response. Okay? John was not like one of the reeds in the Jordan Valley. It was easily blown around. He was a man of conviction. You wouldn't go miles to see and hear him if you didn't believe that. And in fact, the fact that he's arrested by Herod shows that, that he has tremendous courage He's not a reed being blown around. Plenty of reeds in the Jordan Valley. He wasn't one of them. Neither was he dressed in expensive clothes, like someone from the wealthy class. Mark, of course, tells us that he was clothed a bit like Elijah, with a, a leather 
garments, uh, um, camel's hair garments, sorry, and a leather belt. Now, what drew many people to the wilderness was that they recognised that John was a prophet and they wanted to hear his message. Jesus then gives his view of John. He wasn't just any old prophet. He was the fulfilment of the words of Malachi, announcing the coming of a messenger from God who would be a forerunner, who would prepare people to receive the Messiah. And that's exactly what John's father, Zechariah, had prophesied as he looked at his newly born son at his circumcision. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Now, maybe those last words in verse 28 need a little explanation. Uh, Isn't every human being born of a woman? And how can the least in the kingdom of God be greater than John if there's no one greater than John? I mean, Jesus is speaking in riddles, is he? Well, born of a woman was just one of the ways in which Jewish people talked about being a human being. You can find it in the book of Job. But Jesus' estimate of John is viewing him as a member of the old order, the old dispensation, the last and the greatest of the prophets who foretold the coming of the Messiah. But the Messiah has now come. He's on the scene. John's work is finished. He's part of the past. And with the coming of Jesus, a new era has begun. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, has entered a new phase with the appearance of the king's son. And anyone who repents and puts their trust in Jesus enters the kingdom, comes under the rule of God, experiences all the blessings that that, that God brings, blessings that, that John was not able to experience. And in that sense, the lowliest person in the present phase of the kingdom of God is greater, has greater privileges than John had. You think about that if you're a Christian. You know? You're greater than John the baptizer. Does that make you feel good? I don't know. <laughs> you have a greater knowledge of, of who Jesus is and what he did than John the Baptist had. Realise that? How privileged we are. You know, Jesus said to his disciples on another occasion, the, the, the people in the old, old uh, dispensation were, were longing to, f- to see what you see. They didn't see it. They talked about it in, in the future. You're seeing it. What, what a privilege. Do, do we, are we really thankful enough about that? And does it affect our lives? Let's move on. Contrasting reactions to Jesus and John. Uh, I'll get it right this time. Verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they'd been baptised by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they'd not been baptised by John. The NIV, you see, puts a a brackets around this section because it's an aside in which Luke summarises the Jewish response to John. On the one hand, there were the ordinary people, even including the tax collectors, the despised tax collectors, who had recognised that John was indeed preaching God's message of repentance and forgiveness, and so they had submitted to baptism. On the other hand, as the Pharisees and scribes, they rejected God's call because they didn't see any need for repentance and forgiveness. And so they were missing out on God's way of salvation. 
That's a dangerous position to be in. Hmm? Then we can move to the, the last section. Quite a long section. Get it right. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played, we played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say, he was a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. So, Jesus turns from evaluating John to describing the current generation. In what is in effect a parable, because a parable simply means a, a comparison, he paints a picture of two groups of children playing outdoors. When some of the children want to play weddings, the others don't. So when they change and they say, let's play funerals, they still don't want to play. Huh? They're not prepared to join in the game, whichever game it is. It's a lovely little picture of, uh, of children out. <laughs> yes, being a bit awkward. In a similar way, Jesus is saying that, that people weren't willing to follow either John's preaching, which was pretty hard of the judgment of God, or his preaching, which was loving, uh, uh, the, the preaching about the forgiveness of God, they weren't go were prepared to have either one. And the excuse that, that they were making is that they weren't happy about the lifestyle of either John or Jesus. As though uh, the truth of what someone preaches was determined by what they did not or did not eat and drink. Did or did not eat and drink. Yes. Yeah. So don't ask me what I eat and drink. doesn't affect my message, okay? That's what it says. John the baptizer has led a, a life of, of self-denial and ordinary people found that hard to take. It was too challenging. Oh, he must be under some evil influence. He must be uh, emotionally unbalanced. Actually, Jesus was also accused of, of, of having a demon, but that's on another occasion. On this occasion, the, 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 the contrast is Jesus is, is accused of, of going to parties with the outcasts of society, celebrating the joy of the kingdom, and so they accuse him of what Tom Wright describes as guzzling and boozing. And Tom Wright, I'm, I can't help quoting Tom Wright, he goes on, people today still judge Jesus by their expectations. Instead of pausing and probing into the evidence to see what was really going on, they do the same often enough with Jesus' followers, criticising some for being too strict, others for being too soft, some for being too intellectual, others for being uh, too down-to-earth. And we might add, by the way, that, that people also react to sermons in the, two, in the two opposite ways. They either like them a lot or, or dislike them a lot. Uh, and then Tom White goes on, yet wisdom can still be glimpsed by those with eyes to see. Following the Messiah, who is different, is what we different to what we imagined, is always demanding. But that's the way to the kingdom of God. Now this last verse, verse 35. I know I've got a reputation for being very short, but I'm not going to be too short. I want to look at this last verse, 35. 
It sounds rather cryptic, doesn't it? How does it fit here? What does Jesus mean? Wisdom is proved right by her children. <laughs> now, there may be a, a contrast with the children in the marketplace, although it's actually a different word. The children who can't make up their minds what to do. It's much more similar to what the tax collectors and others were doing. It says they acknowledged that God's way was right. Now, it may help us to understand this saying, but wisdom is proved right by her children, if we understand that in Hebrew, the word for wisdom is feminine. Uh, and so in the book of Proverbs, when God's wisdom is personified, uh, it's as a woman. And the Greek word for wisdom is also feminine. So Jesus is, seems to be saying that the wisdom of God's plans and purposes is proved right when people act in a wise way, like children of wisdom. And they make wise choices, and in particular that choice to follow Jesus. That's the wisest choice you can ever make, to follow Jesus. By the way, the message simply says the proof of the pudding is in the eating, but I don't think that gets us quite as far as we should. Wisdom is proved right by her children. Are we the children of wisdom? Does it show in the way we behave? We serve a wise God. His, his way of salvation is the way of wisdom, as Paul explains in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. It's the wisdom of God, as opposed to the foolishness of human beings. Uh, and, and we have a wise God, and, and this was the wisest plan out, to send his son to die for us. And, and if we don't accept it, we're being very foolish. Really foolish. The wisdom is to accept what God has done. So, I conclude. I do conclude. This account that Luke gives us, the teaching of Jesus that was sparked off by John the Baptizer's question. Fascinating, I found it. But there's a basic challenge here. It, it may not be important to answer the question, what was John? Yeah, so it's interesting. What was John? The vital question is, who was Jesus and what did he come to do? Unless we recognise that Jesus was not simply the Jewish Messiah, but the Son of God, sent into this world to be the Saviour of the world, unless we repent of our natural refusal to let God rule in our lives, unless we accept the forgiveness that Jesus died to make possible for us, we will never enjoy the blessings that God wants to shower upon us. That's it. That's the gospel. And we need to be asking ourselves here this morning, am I with the tax collectors or the Pharisees? Have I received Jesus as my Saviour and Lord? Am I still rejecting the gracious call of God? And now is the moment friends, when we can pass, we can move from one group to another. We can change. We can turn around. We can change our minds. We can have a different view of Jesus that, we, that means that we then accept him as our saviour and lord. When we confess that we are not living, we have not been living according to God's ways, but we can accept his forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit. That's what God is saying to us this morning, I believe, through this passage. Let's get the
band up. I hope they've got plenty of ammunition. We can be quiet for a moment anyway. I've, I've said a lot of things. I hope some of them made sense and were clear enough. And again, let me reiterate, if, if God has touched your, your heart in any way this morning, please do share with someone else. Ask someone else to pray with you, especially in this corner. There'll be people very happy to pray with you this morning. Okay? So let's moments quietness, moments peace. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this little episode in the life of Jesus when he was here on earth as he dealt with John's doubting questions. And he will deal with our doubting questions too, we thank you. We thank you that you've spoken to us in various ways through it this morning. Help us, each one, to take something away. Impress on our hearts what you're saying to us through this passage. Uh, and grant that we will, we will be changed. Things will not be the same as they were when we walked in here this morning. Lord, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.